Welcome, friends, to Breakfast in the Ruins, a Michael Moorcock-flavoured podcast. On this show, we delve once again into some of Moorcock's non-fiction, in the form of his expose of his experience of the movie factory dream, Letters from Hollywood. Part series of sardonic missives, part tribute to departed friends, and part travelogue, Letters from Hollywood provides a snapshot of a very particular time in Moorcock's life, during a post-divorce, self-imposed exile, that is frank, hilarious, and tinged with sadness. Joining me in Derry and Tom's once again is Chris, aka Deck the Dice, host of the Grognard Files, and Letters from Hollywood was, in fact, his pick for this episode. We also chat about our road trip to the Moorcock and Tolkien Weekender earlier in 2023, so this could also count as Moorcock and RPGs Part 6.5. And there's no doubt other stuff in there too, as is our want, but mostly, it's Letters from Hollywood. This book, so far as I can tell, has only ever been published in one edition, by Harrop, in 1986, with evocative illustrations by Michael Foreman, the incredibly prolific illustrator of, mostly, children's books. Chances are, if you've seen illustrated Roald Dahl books, they were most likely illuminated by Foreman, and he was also the artist behind Terry Jones's Eric the Viking, amongst a bazillion other things. Despite only the one edition, and it being fairly obscure amongst Moorcock's output, Relatively speaking, it's easy to get hold of used copies in good nick, so get one in. Meanwhile though, set up a deck chair by the pool, pour one out for departed friends, and join Chris and me as we hurriedly flush all our angel dust and read some letters from Hollywood. back in Derry and Tom's and for the second podcast running I've got a second date returnee does that make sense is that even a thing but Chris Hart is back Chris all the way from the room of role-playing rambling Chris aka Dirk the Dice host of the Grognard Files is back in Derry and Tom's welcome back Chris pleased to be back good to see you Andy and mm. you're looking resplendent on this Friday evening I must say well yeah I'm, I'm, <laughs> fe- I'm feeling rather her suit let's uh, um <laughs> But, you know, it feels good. August, frankly, has been a complete washout. It's fucking freezing, so I'm growing my winter coat early. So I, can really I, wish, I wish I could grow a beard, um, but I, I can't manage it. I think somebody once said I have the most unconvincing beard that they've ever seen. So. <laughs> you know what? Buy a fake one. Who's going to know? <laughs> Who's going to know? Just plaster it on. Now, we're here to discuss a Moorcock book, as we were last time. We'll get to that shortly. But this is the first time I think we've seen each other since the Moorcock and Tolkien Weekender, which took place yes. back in, oh God, when was it, April? Yeah, it was. a. a I know it was earlier than that. It was um, March, but it seems a long mm. time ago, yet this year has gone very quickly. Yeah, It seems like a long time ago since it happened. It, it just proves that time is both physical and transcendental, doesn't it? That's... <laughs> It does. And you know what? I think for for the listeners who might not have a Scooby-Doo, what we're talking about, of course, how did the Malkin, how did the Moorcock Tolkien, I'm only halfway down my first pint and I can't speak already. (laughs) How did the Moorcock Tolkien Weekender come to be? Actually, before we get into that question, I'm just going to rattle off my first drink choice of the evening. Because... Well, there's probably something of an explanation required as to how we're going to tackle the booze for this evening's podcast. But the book we're discussing actually launches into beer talk 
and spirit talk fairly quickly for one reason or another and we will get to that but because i didn't want to wait until we actually got onto that point i thought i would uh um, pour one out anywhere and i'm, I'm drinking a i've put i've put the bottle down somewhere how can i have lost the bottle this room's tiny anyway it's a banana bread beer at 5.5 percent north Holt brewery i think it was uh, and oh, it's quite right. pleasant what are you kicking off with well i'm going to um kick off with um a sam smith's um ah. that, that's relevant to what we're discussing isn't it, um, it is. so um yeah your standard sam smith's beer that I has got from the local co-op. But, mm. yeah, so we've got some unusual uh, beer choices. And, I, unfortunately, I couldn't provide the uh, Colombian uh, cocaine, so I have got <laughs> a sherbet fountain. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't go Colombian or Peruvian. As, as it's been a very, very, very long time since I've powdered my nose, I don't think I dare do anything of that sort anywhere. And... I don't have any sherbet, so I'm just going to have to vicariously enjoy it through you. What a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. It really all, amused all me when all... Sam Smith's got a mention in this book. I've got to say, yes. but we'll get to that. Yeah. yeah. This will all come, become clear as we uh, tackle the book, I guess. I know, it's so enigmatic, isn't it? So <laughs> yeah. tell us, how did, how did the Moorcock Tolkien Weekender come about? What was it? So it's a gaming weekend, and it's been a long-standing weekend that the One Ring people who like playing Tolkien's One Ring, get together once a year and hire out one of these Airbnb places and play the One Ring. They've been doing a campaign over a period of years and getting together. And, I, I, you know, you sat at home watching this happen and you kind of enjoying it vicariously, but also getting a sense of FOMO uh-huh. and thought, mm, that would be a good idea. Mm. But I wouldn't want to play a Tolkien game. I would have, want to have a, a Moorcock Weekender. Mm. And so I started having this uh, idea of having a, a, a weekend of playing Moorcock games. And then I thought, oh, wouldn't it be fun if we did it on the same weekend as the guys who were doing the one ring one? And then we could have a water fight in the garden <laughs> and finally determine who was better, yeah. Tolkien or, or Moorcock. Um, that didn't quite transpire, but we we were all in one house, weren't we, which was quite a peculiar it was situation. a cr- it was a cracking house. I've got to say, it was the, the kitchen was fucking great. And when it comes to life in general, one of the things I really love are kitchens, sitting in kitchens, drinking in kitchens, and gaming in kitchens. A nice big kitchen. That kitchen was unbelievable. It was huge, old, rustic kitchen with a massive table that you could sit around probably about 12 people, 14 people around. It was an absolute dream setting to play yeah. a game. It was fantastic. And it had the uh, Downton Abbey bells as well, didn't it? So mm. we were in the servants' quarter, weren't we? Yeah. Typically, we were in the service, servants' quarters and the Tolkien bunch were in the drawing room. <laughs> That's right, um, yeah. They're welcome <laughs> to it. We were nearer the fridge. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a, it, it was a place in... Um, South Kilworth in Leicestershire that I, I've i never been to before and I, I don't think I'd ever be able to find again. It mm. was that kind of place, wasn't it? It was a, a beautiful place mm. and it had a hot tub that we were told didn't work. And it, it was, it, it, I think all of us were struck when we arrived there, just how many of us there actually were. Yeah. I don't think we'd quite anticipated. Yeah. That. Well, when you asked me along, I must confess 
it, I, I had to I had to do a little think about whether I was going to commit to it or not because yeah. going away I mean obviously I'd, I'd met you very briefly in passing at Grogmeet a few years ago and we'd communicated online and we'd recorded a podcast together so I felt comfortable with you everybody else was essentially a stranger other than knowing some of the Twitter handles and to me yeah. that was a real roll of the dice yes yeah in order to actually commit to something like that but it was terrific all the guys there i mean that there's a certain thing with me when i'm gaming when we game at a table we have a mix of people from the early 20s through to my age of both sexes and so going and everybody looking like thinner versions of me <laughs> was a little bit odd and, and a, a little bit of a the weirdest thing about it it felt like a little bit of culture shock because it's, it was so different to my usual gaming table but there were mm. such a top bunch of blocks and i shared a room with tony who was part of the tolkien road trip smashing block got on with him like a house on fire and we played some really cracking games and there was plenty of food and booze on hand as well so other than the fact that I caught Groglerg when I was there and was yes. ill for two weeks afterwards, and I got a speeding ticket. <laughs> fanned really? Finding my way out of <laughs> South Kilworth. Yeah, yeah. I, I must have taken a wrong turn. And I was trying to find my way back to the A1, I think, or the M1, whichever it, whichever it was. Don't even remember seeing a speed camera. A week later, I got a speeding ticket for doing 37 and a 30. The, those things aside, cracking weekend and you yeah. know, altogether successful. Yeah, and I think I feel I must apologise because I went with the lurgy, and I would, if, if you remember, I'd had a couple of weeks where I'd felt really ill, and I, yeah. I, I was on the other side of it. Yeah, but I was I wasn't at hundred percent, um, and I felt that when I was playing games, and I ended up sleeping on the um, settee. Yeah. Just to, so I didn't disturb anybody whilst I was coughing and that kind mm. of thing. So, yeah, it was. Uh, well, I you, you powered mate. on through and game mastered an excellent game. So, you know, I'm not saying yeah, no we... harm, no foul, but I caught you all laggy. However, I did take issue with you afterwards and say you owe me a podcast appearance <laughs> <laughs> as a result. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I'm here. That's why yeah. I'm here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, of course, we played the Elric at the end of time. Battle for the End of Time board game on the yeah. Friday night, which was a yeah. lot of fun, lots of twists and turns, some drama. And uh, yeah. fortunately, we had someone there who could explain the rules to us because they were a bit esoteric. Yes. And then two Mocock games on the Saturday, one run by you, one run by Blythe. And then, of course, we played uh, The One Ring in the yeah. evening. A crossover. Now, yeah. How did you find... The games, I suppose we had had a conversation on Discord ahead of time about that perennial question of what makes a game more cockian. And it's a question yes. that we come back to regularly on this when we end up talking about role-playing games. I mean, and I've only recently seen your communications regarding this year's Grogmeet saying that you would be happy if every game at Grogmeet was Stormbringer because I know you're a big lover of the Stormbringer role-playing game. Yes. Did the weekend add anything to your inner dialogue about what makes a game more cocky and did it answer any questions well i took up the challenge because i, I know that on this uh, podcast you've challenged the notion of um, stormbringer a little haven't you that you 
said, you know, that it goes into the granularity of shopping lists and, uh, you know, that this isn't the essence of the stories of um, Warcock. Um, so I, I took that as a, a bit, bit of a challenge. And, and the game that Blythe played was Dungeon Crawl Classics, which mm. is a proper old school D20 type OSR emulator, if you like. Mm. It kind of, it's got the spirit of um, those games. And the people who produce it, Goodman Games, um, they are really in the spirit of the Appendix N, which is famously the Dungeon Master's Guide, has a list of influences that uh, Gygax had in the original uh, when he was creating Dungeons & Dragons. And they really go into that area. Mm. And um, I think that fitted really well. I felt that... There's something about the, I don't like using the phrase gonzo, but that kind mm. of creative randomness, that kind of mm. sense of chaos that the tables generated that Dungeon Crawl Classics uses really fitted the essence of um, the story we created, really, mm. uh, playing a, a proper OSR game, really. It just that mm. like the setting was quite bonkers, wasn't it? We are in a, a kind of... A multi-dimensional spaceship that was collecting things from across the multiverse and i think it included a, a an avatar of elvis i think was one <laughs> that's of the right most... it, it did yeah it yeah. did it was it was thoroughly entertaining and um, i played a hook-handed beggar and i had a gr- nad sakarian beggar and i had a great time i've got to say i had a great time <laughs> yeah and there, and were, the there end... were also a lot of twists and turns uh, a lot of player agency when it came to their own agendas and that all played out at the end and was really amusing and really entertaining yeah it was great yeah and yeah in the end we were all uh, battling to get to the lords of chaos who were sat in court and we were trying to get this uh, artifact to them yeah and i think i think we were the only two to actually escape weren't we didn't we actually yeah, we ended up in on a different plane, didn't we? And I know Elvis was there at the end as well. <laughs> yes. Elvis was one of the gang by the end. I can't remember what his fate was, but it was particularly entertaining. Yeah, what almost almost got away with the the MacGuffin as well, but Daily yeah. Dwarf the Blighter just screwed it up for us right at the last minute. Oh dear! But of course, you went with a different approach with your game. Absolutely. So I thought that I would to um, Aegon, which is created by John Harper, and it does things in a different scale. So it's probably fair to say it's a more narrative game than some of the more OSR games that I would normally play. And Aegon is based on the stories of Odysseus and his journey home. And during the game, it's very, uh, it's based on cycles. So you you travel from island to island and uh, uh, things happen on the island and you use uh, the rules to do broad actions. So uh, dice roll, you build up a dice pool and it is far more narrative. And I thought, Mm. well, wouldn't that be interesting to take that concept and instead of uh, this being Odysseus journey home, if it was the dark ship that sails between worlds, there's mm. many sundered worlds. So I got you guys to create uh, on the fly aspects of the eternal champion or a, a companion. Cause it's quite a quick system to create characters and it's all do, done through descriptors. Mm. And 
you could either associate with the lords of law or the lords of chaos and ask them for divine favor at certain times. And I think together we built up a um, a story over the afternoon uh, where you were chasing a villain that you actually composed across mm. these different worlds in the uh, in the young kingdoms. And I think overall, I think it was eighty percent successful. I think as a GM. As a player, I really enjoyed it. I, I, and a lot of these like modern narrative games where the players are invited to contribute, um, I know they exist and we've dabbled <laughs> in them a little bit, but I'm I'm a very lazy GM and I'm quite a lazy player as well. So when you're put on the spot to contribute something, and I think, I think some players really embrace that and... I am in, it entirely depends on my mood and probably how much alcohol I've got in me as to yes. how, as to how how much I will commit and contribute to that. But I really enjoyed it, and I think the other thing about that was as well when we've dabbled in it, um, I think the pressure is taken off you a little bit when essentially it's a, a, a group contribution like the generation of the villain, and yes. each of you comes up with just a small element of one aspect of that villain. I think that worked lovely. I thought it was really, really good. And yeah. on the whole, I, I quite liked that system. I almost bought it when I got home, but I've, I've been trying desperately not to buy new systems because 95% of the crap I've got in the house, I have never played and I don't need well, yet more. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I brought one of the fundamental principles of it. And so I am to blame for that. 20% not working and the the reason I ignored it and the, it says um, really don't play this with any more than four players and there were six uh, of us yeah. um, and so um, it works quite well when you're moving around the table and people are describing how they um, fail or succeed or how they triumph um, against the strife mm. um, and when it's moving quickly like that it has it's quite nimble and quick on its feet um, moving through these picaresque situations but because there were six of us it kind of got a little repetitive i think and um you know it, the same contest had to be described six times so john harper's right when he says in the rule book you know don't push it um mm. so that's a, that was a learning for me what was interesting is you know, i played with you guys in the morning we're all uh, moorcock fans and really used the mythology of the multiverse mm -hmm. within your eternal champions in the evening when i was playing with the tolkien guys it moved a bit quicker because there was fewer of them and mm. um, but they didn't have the the myth to lean into they didn't have the stories so they found it difficult because they were kind of basing it on what they thought they knew but that mm. kind of worked in an interesting way as well because it it became a bit more like uh to use that phrase again gonzo because yeah. they really went into the multiverse aspect of it so yeah. you know i think tony played a punk rocker uh, right. from uh <laughs> from ludbrook grove in uh, the uh, 70s yeah uh, it was a it was a artist so that really worked well on the on the ship <laughs> so that's the thing isn't it for me about what makes a game more cocky and it's not about if there's a nadsakorian beggar in it and it's not about if Ariok's in it. It's something about the tone and the mood and the journey from A to B to C that makes it more Mococcian. And if you wanna if you wanna be pure about it, 
doesn't matter if you know anything about any of the worlds that he's created because you should just make that shit up on the fly. You know, yes. if, you, if you read any of the Karam novels, the encounters are just something that turns up that's odd and a bit weird. Like, I don't know, six-legged horses with um, blokes with no gobs and conical hats and three arms and they have a massive fight and they all die because Karam takes his eye patch off and he moves on. And yes. you never see or hear of them again. You know, and that's what that's and, where the supplements get things wrong because they do stat blocks for these things that are just throwaway. Yes, you know? and that's and that's the beauty of Aegon or Paragon, as it's known as, as it in its um, more generic sense. Mm. It's that you can do those scale of things. So, it, you know, you were able to muster armies mm. uh, to fight on your side to overcome your villain and. Uh, that you were able to develop allies, you can do things at the scale that Moorcock does when you're doing those climatic battles mm. uh, with demons flying above your head and all that kind of thing. It's just you can do that epicness, which Stormbringer, for all that I find good about it, it's not on that scale. It is a more granular scale. It is more mm. on, you know, the individual against um, a pit against another individual, and as you say, um, the interminable. A stat block that you have to deal with. Mm. Now, I did run Stormbringer after we had that discussion about Stormbringer with Loz on oh, the podcast yeah. about three years ago. And uh, I loved it. I loved running it. I, uh, the guys who played, we had a really good time with it. And if you want to do something that's fun, yeah, it's great. It's it's a, a really fun system. And I actually found it really, really amusing now, thinking back, looking at whether you can afford a two-man canoe or a clay jar or any of these things, but they're just tiny throwaway things that we picked up on when we actually looked at the rules and had a good laugh about. But I think Stormbringer's as good as anything else. I know when, I'm going to speak for Loz here, he's not here, but when Loz plays games, if Loz does something that he wants to be more cocky and he wants everybody to be heroic and hard to kill, and yes. that does feel more, more cocky, and because if they can't defeat a uh, a menace themselves some kind of deus ex machina will turn up and defeat it for them that's just yeah. how things happen in these mocock books when they're going to travel log mode personally my i have a conflict because my own testing games is i like low-powered games i like the yeah. players to be shit kickers i like them to be scared of combat and try and find ways around it because if you get a game where the players are hard to kill everything becomes about fighting and there's no risk and yeah, so there's a real conflict there for me. And probably the answer is that I'm actually coming to eventually and slowly is that even having just recently run Black Sword Hack Ultimate Chaos Edition, we had a great time and I tried to incorporate more cocky and tropes into it. But there's something about that system where as whilst it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice juxtaposition really of the characters on paper look low powered but there is some wild swingy stuff in there in terms of capabilities and powers that throw up real surprises for the GM. And if you're really yes. keen to, if you jump on that and make and, and provide a narrative expansion of what just happened because a character used an ability in an interesting fashion and you don't pitch yourself against the players as, uh, as an opponent, it doesn't really matter that the, the characters are fairly low powered because you're not out to get them. And I think yes. a lot of games, the way the setup is, the encounters and the way the GM runs the game, they are an opponent to the players. And you've just, it's just a mindset thing, I suppose, yeah. about those things. But yeah, I think ultimately that's why I think a lot of these old systems are absolutely fine for a good time. 
but I've probably been overthinking it for a long time. And ultimately, if I'm if I'm running that game, and I will be running it again a couple of times. I've had to postpone on a couple of occasions. And I will be running it again. And I learned a lot from running that game the first, uh, what, mm. six, five, six weeks ago. It was the first time I've GM'd a game for quite a long time. But I was thinking back to the Moorcock weekend when I was preparing it and thinking about the Aegon game and the Dungeon Crawl Classics game. I've got to say, we played the One Ring, and that tended more towards being a bit um, bit too tactical for me when it yeah. came to all of the combat and, and, and the moves and everything. I liked certain elements about it. I liked the um, the travel phase and you know the scouting. I thought all those things were quite good and, and fit that kind of game quite well. But it did strike me that you know, it doesn't really matter if you don't know Moorcock, you can still play and play in a Moorcockian game and enjoy it and not really think or realise, just enjoy the ride. I think it was the same with that one ring game. In terms of, you know, everybody knows what an arc is. It doesn't matter if you don't yeah. know where Rivendell is, but if you know what an arc is, and it's it's a little bit more grey and, sorry, it's a little bit more black and white in terms of where the good is, there the bad is. But it still provided good opportunities to... You know, to role play a little bit and 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 to have a bit of fun. Always good to try new things. Yeah, and one last thing to say about Aegon, and it's probably something that I'm going to revisit and try again because I know that when you were talking about uh, more cooking games with uh, Clarky, the subject of Doom came up, mm. and with Aegon, you can have Doom. So that is how you. Uh, get harm as a hero mm. you are it, 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 it doesn't really manifest itself as physical harm as such or um it, it could it could be mental strife um as well but slowly and steadily as you call upon your divine favor from the uh, chaos or war inc- increasingly your level of doom on a tracker increases and things start to get more difficult and mm. i think that element is very more cocky and that really just fit in with the settings of the eternal champion and the multiverse mm. that sense that this is predestined and you know i i i'm feeling the pressure of uh being a hero in this uh setting mm. and um the more and more i call upon um the agencies that can help me the more and more i'm under threats if you like so i quite like that aspect of it as well mm. black sword hack ultimate chaos edition has a doom die um right. but, and it's it's a usage die effectively so you start off with 1d6 and if you want to do something like a, a an interesting or powerful combat maneuver or you want to cast a spell or you want to invoke a demon you roll your usage die and if you roll one or two it drops to a d4 um, and if you roll one or two the next time it drops, you've lost it. And and it can have terrible consequences. So one minute you can do something really powerful and spectacular, but it may cost you. And at the end of the day, if you um, if you run out of luck <laughs> with your rolls, you're, you're going to be in trouble and you're going to be um, at severe disadvantage and at severe risk. And that made things quite interesting. Once the players, I suppose it's like when fate points first arrived in games back in the day, players always forgot they were there and you had to say, don't forget you've got fate points. There's a similar kind of thing going on, but there's a little bit more flexibility with this doom die and a few more options. And just making the players remember, I suppose it's like combat manoeuvres in RuneQuest 6, Stroke Mithras or whatever, just making them remember that there are a raft of options available yes. available to them 
to actually do things, to do interesting things and to do powerful things and to impose themselves on a situation. And once they got a handle on that, they became really creative with it. It was really good. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. 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 So that was the Mocock weekend. Do you think there'll yeah. be another? Well, I I don't know. I think it was a it was a, an interesting experiment. Mm. I think um it would be good, I think, for us to um explore other authors. I mean, there's talk of a Vancian weekend. Mm. Uh and uh I think it'd just be good to uh, game in other worlds, but yeah, I've this year has been the year of Morcott for me because I've played in a Stormbringer campaign and I've been reading more Morcott than I ever have done, really. I've mm. kind of, I think, thanks to your podcast, really, I've uh, started to rediscover the books and uh, reread them and in many case, uh, cases discover new ones. So, yeah, this is my Morcock year. Whether it'll carry on into the next year, I don't know. I am somebody who is quite uh you know i'm one of these people who obsess over something for a period of time and then move on to the next thing so mm. well you knows? know what thank you for joining our reread again so yeah what are we doing this time well i give you the choice and you chose letters from hollywood why letters from hollywood it is a book that has been on my shelf for a number of years and in april this year I took it off the shelf and I read it and I loved it. Mm. I read it in one sitting. It's a fantastic um, book. If people are not aware of it, I suppose it could be described as an epistle tree travelogue. Mm. It's a series of letters that Moorcock wrote to J.G. Ballard. They were originally printed in Ambit magazine, uh, which Ballard was the fiction and literary editor. And that's an interesting Little magazine. I think we talked about little magazines last time, but it'd be quite nice to talk about that. But yeah, I had an interest in, in that because I, these letters are a, fas, a fascinating memoir of a period of time when Moorcock was in self exile. Mm. He'd, and like he's one of his own characters, really, he decided to leave England because. There were a number of things in his personal life that he wanted to avoid. And a friend of his was ill and he wanted to go and uh, spend some time with him. And so I suppose the first portion of the book is that period of time where he's spending time with his friend and um, you get some idea of what life was like out living in um living in LA in the uh, 70s. And we'll probably go into more detail of that. And then there's a, a, a the middle section is i suppose it's michael moorcock as barton fink as he <laughs> worked yes. yeah. he, he works as a hollywood screenwriter yeah. uh, for for a major hollywood director and uh, that ends up a uh, disastrous uh, encounter um and then the final third the final act that's where the travelogue is so um traveling through california and uh, seeing various uh, places uh, along the way. So it is a fascinating read, I think. And because he's writing it to J.G. Ballard, you get a sense that, although it's not fictionalised, he's really playing into the mm. Ballardian aspects of L.A. and the architecture and the observations he makes about the people that he sees there. That's what I, I, makes it so fascinating as as a, an odd 
travelogue because it's almost like an anti-Bidecker's of LA and, and Northern California in that he is definitely writing this for an audience and you could tell he's writing it for a very, very specific audience. And of course we know in this case it's J.G. Ballard. I think there's more than a touch of shaggy dog story to some of it yes. when, you, when, you, when you think about it in a little bit more detail, but that's what makes it all the more entertaining. I think there are, there are some caveats to the degree to which I found this entertaining, which we'll, we'll touch upon. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, and actually we, we touched upon some of this in, in our last episode and the, the three core components of it. You're right. It's, it's about him spending time with Graham Hall, his old new world's compatriot who himself sounded like an absolutely fascinating character. He, ca- he casually says, oh, yeah, I'm staying with my friend Harlan. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, he's, he's getting put up by Harlan Ellison at his place. But it's, it's, it's very interesting. The, the first couple of pages, it really sets its stall out in the very, very first letter. And whilst I always think of Moorcock as being incredibly progressive, there are still elements of him. Actually, this is a 40-odd-year-old white bloke from England in L.A., and some of that does show through. And there's a really good example on, on the first page of the first letter where it says, um, at night, police helicopters occasionally drone over. Their searchlights telling us that there's a suspect in the area. And in brackets, it helpfully puts, this is primarily a Chicano suburb. As if to say, you know, <laughs> yeah, the coppers are all over the place, but it is predominantly Mexican. <laughs> and it's like, just just the, those, those occasional moments when I read it, I just think, oh, because... yeah. There's a habit he's got of using terminology and labels for people that actually, even in the 70s and 80s, still were probably considered quite derogatory. But these communities had taken ownership of them. But it's like, just because they've taken ownership of some of these derogatory terms doesn't mean that you, as a 40-year-old white English bloke, should be really comfortably throwing that kind of language around. Those, those yes. are the odd occasions where that kind of language comes in. And I don't think it's down to Mocock being racist or any of those things. I don't think he's racist. There are ob- obvious examples where him and Linda live in neighbourhoods which are predominantly ethnic and they get on wonderfully with the neighbours. But nevertheless, he makes ref- pre- frequent references to the blacks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just a little bit jarring. But at the end of the day... I've spent a lot of time with my old man these last few weeks for one reason or another. And sometimes you just have to remember that those were slightly different times. And there's probably a degree to which I have to ask myself, am I taking offence on other people's behalves? And do I just need to, you know, relax a little bit and not worry about it? But just from time to time, some of the language is just a little bit jarring. Yeah. And I, I observed that as well. Mm. And, I think we had this, as you say, we had this discussion last time when we were talking about wizardry and wild romance. And I think he is a a non-conformist, anti-establishment figure mm. from a very discreet and specific uh, place. And Ambit, I suppose, as a magazine, reflects that because mm. Ambit is a literary magazine um, they actually um, stopped, I think it's been around since like 1959, actually stopped being published in April this year. Um, so it's had a long run. 
and it was um, a publication that was um, supported by Martin Bax, who is a, a paediatrician by day and uh, a magazine publisher by evening and a fan of jazz. And I knew, uh, I knew Ambit quite well because um, Blythe, my sidekick, as he describes himself, um, was friends with Jim Burns, who, mm. the poet who was a contributor to um, Ambit. And it, it, it is a very rarefied world um, that Ambit exists in. And it is a very, it, it, it's quite bohemian, but it's kind of a, a conservative, Bohemia, mm. if, if yeah, if that, that describes perfect, it well, that makes perfect sense. And you know, for all the for for all the kind of uh, revolutionary movement that New Worlds represented, and Ballard and Moorcock, they were pushing against some of the orthodoxies in literature, mm. and that's what interested them in, in music, and in those areas of life that they were interested in. I don't think they were particularly social progressives. I don't think they were particularly interested in, you know, the society and equality of society. And I think I said that previously. I think we have a tendency to project those on that. I think it was it's from a very, very rarefied view mm. um, that that they're in. Very creative, pushing against the establishment, but yeah. the arts establishment, if you like. Yeah, and it comes through loud and clear in this book it's it's hugely entertaining it's wonderfully written but what comes through loud and clear especially at the end we're probably getting ahead of ourselves but at the end when he goes to san francisco he absolutely rejects <laughs> the the yeah. social niceties and the social mores of the san francisco set and much prefers the stratified grimy society of la because he says it's essentially a more honest version of fucked mm. Than, yes. than the San Francisco version, um, but yeah, he, I mean, he, it's 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 not long before he also piqued my interest. Only only a, a, over of the page where um, he says, uh, "Old Hollywood is half ruined. The studios are still there, with their offices in different architectural styles, so they can be used for locations, all looking inward on squares or campuses, and you still can't tell the real sky from the backlot sky. But they are more and more like dark age monasteries." Outside, the stars set in the pavements frequently celebrate names you've never known or else completely forgotten, and they're often covered in dog shit. Everyone seems old and looks like the actor or actress they hoped to replace when they first moved here half a century ago. But that's a long way from North Hollywood, all that, where I am. I would move to Hollywood proper, full of spray-painted cryptographs, decay, some street life, if I could. If I stay out here on a semi-regular basis, that's what I shall do. It's more expensive, but it has plenty of texture, and it isn't too unsafe. I need the mixture, I think. I might as well make the most of my exile, for this was not much of a voluntary move. I'm enjoying the experience. It relieves the bafflement and the brooding into which I slip about once a day, faced with a story to write and subject matter close to home. The young men in the liquor store ask my advice on which British beers to import. Currently, strangely, I'm drinking Theakston's Old Peculiar, which a couple of years ago you could only find in Yorkshire. They get me different ones to try and suggest some small US brewers I might like. So I try them, but I don't think I'll be able to keep up the beer man role for long, not unless I go for the complete Chesterton kit, with the danger, of course, of turning into Kingsley Amis. Good pint, this, 
I could say to the unblinking Chicanos as I lift a tweedy arm and put a foaming tankard of Samuel Smith to hearty lips. What's the crumpet like round here? I laughed out loud at this. I laughed out loud at the concept, funnily enough, not of old peculiar being a thing in Los Angeles, because, just small anecdote, many years ago, probably going back to the early 90s, my mate Yaki, his cousin Rafi, came over, and he's from Los Angeles, lives in California. My mate Yaki's auntie moved out there, married a doctor, so all of his cousins are Hispanic. And Rafi came over, we took him to a club in Hull called the Wellington Club, and we took him in there, and every time it was his round, he bought Budweiser. And every time it was my round, I bought him Newcastle Brown and got him absolutely rat on Newcastle Brown. And later that night, we went back to my flat. We did buckets, and he spent about half an hour throwing up in my bathroom. And I never saw him again. I think he <laughs> got picked up by Yaki's mama at about 2 o'clock in the morning and took home looking, got taken back to theirs looking grey and fragile. But a few years later, Yaki went out to L.A., and they were all drinking Newcastle Brown. And Newcastle Brown was all the rage in Los Angeles bars. So Old Peculiar didn't necessarily make me make me wonder, but Sam Smith's did. <laughs> because yeah. Sam Smith's is the most oddball, eccentric, parochial brewery <laughs> probably in the UK. And the, just the thought of Michael Moorcock drinking a bottle of Sam Smith's in 1978 or 1979 in LA just seemed so Congress. <laughs> I don't know if you've been in a Sam Smith pub recently. Well, it's Sam Smith's um, uh, owned um, Shambles in Manchester, mm. um, which is it famously uh, after the bomb in 1976, uh, 1996, was moved brick by brick into a different uh, location. And I spent many a night in, uh, in the, having the Haranga brew, uh, the, the kind of... Um, Imitation. It's imitation beer, isn't it? It kind of matches brands in a sort of way, yeah. um, uh, but creating their own unique take on <laughs> on on things. Aranga yeah. brew was my drink of choice yeah. in the nineties. Uh, yeah, that there was. Well, there still is a pub in Hull called the Blue Bell, which is one of our favourite haunts when we go back into um, when we go back to Hull. And I used to love the bottled brown ale, the nut brown ale. I used to love the Sam Smith's pale, the old brewery bitter, um, or is it the old mill bitter? I can't remember. There's an absolutely staggering array of bottled Sam Smith's beers. If you see their full range, it's fucking enormous. But the, the, the funny thing about Sam Smith's pubs is the owner is a true eccentric. And when he inherited the brewery maybe 10 years ago, he started to implement all of his eccentric beliefs in the pubs. So that's why these days, if you go in a Sam Smith's pub, there are signs saying, no iPads, no phones, this pub is for talk. And you, and oh, you, wow, I didn't know that. I've not been in one for oh, such a long time. Go and check one out. You get told off if you get your phone out. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. To, to the degree where, when lockdown was on because of COVID, my mate Yaki, again, me and Phil went to Hull and I dropped him a line. I said, we're in town. Are you around? He said, oh, I'm just in um, Blue Bell at the moment. And they'd put yellow tape around the bar so you couldn't lean on the bar. You had to stand two or three feet from the bar when you made your order and you had to lean forward to get your beer because of COVID restrictions and COVID guidelines and all that business. And um, we went in there. Yaki had already gone. And... All the old timers were just stood leaning at the bar, paying no attention whatsoever to the yellow tape. But Yaki had got bollocks when he got his phone out. 
absolutely amazing. So yeah, quite eccentric, quite eccentric to the point where an old mate of mine who I used to work with at Old Prison, who wouldn't by the name Chopper for one reason or another, reasons that I won't go into, but <laughs> him and his missus took over the most famous Sam Smith's pub in York. It's on the river. And it has a scale outside, which shows where all of the historical floods have got to up the wall. It's a really well-known pub in York. And when they got interviewed, he turned up there in his ancient Rolls Royce with the open front where the driver doesn't have a cover. You know, we're talking a really, really old Rolls Royce. So he turned up down this terrace street and all in his Rolls Royce, went in and interviewed them in the living room. And that's how they found out that they'd got the job. Yeah, very, very eccentric. But another weird connection is Newcastle Brown is now brewed at the Sam Smith Brewery. Oh, there you go. Right. It's not even brewed in the northeast anymore. It's brewed in North Yorkshire. Yeah, so. There you go. But anyway, I'm going to drink an old peculiar in, in celebration oh, well, of this book. Well, I think I'll join you. Mm. Yeah, so we've got our first beer mention, and of course... It's not long before we get a mention of something else as well, because, as you said, the the first part of this book is really about him going to spend time with Graham Hall, his friend who he worked with on New Worlds, who essentially declared that he was going to drink himself to death and rather successfully did so, Um, rather sad. And I must say, I didn't really know anything about Graham Hall before I read this book. No, so, neither, neither did I. Neither yeah. did I. I. I wondered whether it, at first whether it was um, a, a pseudonym because he mm. does have a tendency to use pseudonyms throughout this book and perhaps we'll go on to mm. some of those. And you know, this is the uh, closest I think we've got uh, to an actual memoir, this book, I think, mm. of, uh, particularly this uh, period of time. Uh, yeah, I think the Graham I'm, Hall stuff is the, the truth in this book. yes. The, yes. the, the closest thing to unvarnished truth, especially some of the stuff later on when Graham is close to death and after he's told Sue, his partner, that he loves her and then he's kind of backtracked on it. and But but when they spend a long time with him getting drunk, he actually kind of admits it. It's all It all feels really genuine and, Real, and, and yeah. heartfelt. It's, it's quite traumatic, isn't it? Because it, yeah. it is the portrayal of somebody who has a pure self-destructive streak mm. and but in the midst of that and you're right it is very moving there are moments of absurdity aren't there as well mm. because uh, i think at one point uh, we mentioned the um uh, the cocaine from colombia and mm. um, that's brought along by a friend of his isn't it graham's friend to try and distract him from the booze so yeah. to get you away from the booze you know get get off your head on this so, yeah. yeah yeah to get you off the panel. Um, yeah. I've, I've brought you some some pure Colombian, but is but he doesn't want it. <laughs> he just wants his partner. So I, I looked into Graham Hall, and because I don't own all the old New Worlds magazines, I had to do a bit of Tinterweb research, and I found a site called Galactic Journey, where a guy called um, Mark Yon has been doing reviews over the last few years of various issues of New Worlds. And there were Graham Hall stories in the November 1966 and January 1967 editions of New Worlds. And he actually did reviews of these stories. And the first one is, was a story called The Tennyson Effect. And, and Mark said, a new name to me, I think. This story is one of those experimental pro streams of consciousness that try to tell a lot but actually do little. Not for me, I'm afraid. Two out of five. So that didn't really give too much away. But there's uh, another story in the January 67 edition called Sun Push. 
And he says, um, trench warfare that wouldn't be out of place in the First or Second World Wars, except this one's in Britain. Unremittingly grim. Private Time sent St. John Smith with his battalion companions, Amos and Sergeant Trelawney, fight their way across southern England. Nasty things happen. War's a filthy business, one of the characters says, and that seems to be the main point of the story. To prove it, there are a number of atrocities that occur here. For example, captured prisoners are put into brothels, sedated, and forced to perform, amongst other indignities, something our shell-shot characters accept and take advantage of. War is hell, etc., etc. Three out of five. So, yeah, he rated that one ever so slightly higher. And I can't find any references to any of the Graham Hall stories, but I do know that he did, I think he did some editing work on New Worlds as well. But I think what this really tells me is that I need to accelerate something I've had on the agenda, which is reviews of New Worlds, or certainly coverage of New Worlds on the podcast. But getting hold of some of them would be a challenge. But there are the 70s paperback best of new worlds edition so i think we'll mm-hmm. probably have to give some of that some thought and i know a couple of the patrons have have requested that so that's probably something we'll look at but i think i've got three or four of those i need to dig them out and check if there are any graham hall stories in there but it certainly sounded like something of a character yeah certainly and i think Moorcock actually acknowledges doesn't he as a as a writer uh he lacks ambition i think is mm. the way that he describes it you know i mm. think he a person of potential who never really realizes what he could do and i think it's because of this self-destructive quality because he's young isn't he this is yeah. uh he, he's in his 30s um but he's yeah he, he's determined to kill himself yeah and richard glenn jones the artist who did some of the very earliest jerry cornelius covers he worked on new worlds and he's he's got a blog and I was reading a post from a couple of years ago where he reminisces about some of his involvement with the New Worlds crowd and spending time with a couple called Di and Mike that moved in those circles and he met them and became friends with them. Mike, in this case, is actually turns out to be M. John Harrison. But he writes in that blog, he writes, one frequent caller was Graham Hall who offered to buy Di from Mike for £100. And they were so broke they considered this very seriously before eventually turning it down. Graham was richer than the rest of us, apart from his involvement with New Worlds. He'd had three short stories published in its pages and was sometimes billed as assistant editor, which made him a big shot in this little world. He wrote scripts for DC Thompson's comics, mostly schoolgirl yarns, for Bunty. This enabled him to buy a spanking new Hillman Imp, a tiny car for a big guy, in which he drove up to the head office in Dundee from time to time. He offered to show some of my lighter work to Thompson's to see if I might cut it as an artist for the Beano or Dandy, but he never did. And I realised that as far as I was concerned, Graham was playing manipulative and cruel games. He was a troubled person, family issues that we never really found out about, and was rather theatrically saying that he meant to drink himself to death, so he became known to us as Deathwish Hall. Whatever, he didn't like me, and I soon grew to dislike him right back. And I'll put the link to that blog in the show notes, because that one blog post is amazing. It has got so much in it. It's incredible. But, yeah, I'm more and more intrigued by this Graham Hall guy. And, of course, probably a third of the way through the book, maybe, he actually he does pass away. It's quite touching yeah. and heartfelt. He was 33. Yeah. He was 33, yeah. and, he, and he drank himself to death. Incredible. Yeah. And there's some really personal stuff in here. There's some amusing stuff as well, particularly where Harlan Ellison is concerned. Smokot can't resist making offhand references to him being short. <laughs> Which <laughs> yes. really yeah. but he's always every time he visits there's another new gargoyle above the <laughs> above the carport or the garage <laughs> or something like that but there's there's a little bit and this really leans into 
the fact that this sense of melancholy is shot through this entire book, despite the fact that some of it is, I mean, it's all well written. And despite the fact that there's, there's a lot of very amusing stuff in it, there's a real sense of melancholy. And he says at one point, he says, it did me good to stay with Harlan, partly because his lifestyle is almost completely the opposite of my own. Mm. He leads a hectic life, socializes a great deal more than I do, but doesn't drink, do drugs, or enjoy mucking aimlessly about. My life's fairly orderly as a rule, but I enjoy doing all the things he hates. Also, I'm fundamentally monogamous. I simply can't conceive of living the way he does. He kept telling me to get yourself a girl, it'll make you feel better. I told him it was the last thing that would make me feel better, a further emotional involvement. But of course he doesn't think of it like that. My marriage was over, but I couldn't help it if I still felt married. It was like having ghost limbs. And this this is shot through the book, a sense of loss and a yes. sense, a, a sense yeah. of missing things. You know, I mean, later on his, his children come out and nevertheless, it's always there. It's always there throughout the book. And it's very human and very relatable, Moorcock's kind of sel- sense of self in this, which makes it all the more readable and engaging. Yes. What I find uh, striking as well, Andy, is that clearly um, at some point he and Linda get together. But it's not really a moment, is it? It's not a moment where they realise, actually, we're together. It kind of creeps up on you as a reader as you're reading these books, because obviously because of the nature of the letters, you're just Mm. getting partial glimpses in what's happening over a period of time. And then you get this realisation that Harlan Ellison's um, assistant, who's uh, working through his library, sourcing at his library, they become attached, and it's mm. Linda Moorcock who he's still married to. Um, but you don't get that moment, do you? Where no, actually, we're now together. There's just like this uh, wonderfully absurd. There's full of wonderful absurd, absurd moments where he is uh, picking uh, maggots out of the face of her dog. Oh, as a kind of yeah, yeah. That's like a fucking horror story. That isn't it that's the most yeah. it's absolutely horrific where he's just offhandedly talking about the dog because it's one of those dogs it's a pug or something where it's got a wrinkly face and food or matter or whatever it is gets into these wrinkles and before he knows it there's maggots that is picking out of the dog's face it's it's yeah. absolutely disgusting <laughs> it's but fucking he- awful he kind of describes it as a kind of measure of the affection that he has for yeah. Linda, that he finds himself in this predicament that yeah. uh, the true nature of love is picking maggots from your dog's face. Yeah, and you're right as well. There is there isn't that moment. It's, you know, we, we he refers to Linda Steele, and then he's staying with her, and then they're going everywhere together. And when he's having trouble getting his money, they're relying on air credit card, and. It, it took me an embarrassingly long time for the penny to drop that this was Linda Moorcock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was like, yeah. oh, right, okay, now I get it. But Because there is no reference to... I, th- I think, again, I think it comes down to the fact that he's writing these letters to Jimmy, to J.G. Ballard, yeah. and he's got a very specific purpose and a very, he's writing in a very specific tone and voice for J.G. Ballard. And the, there is not an ounce of romance to any of it. No. It is, no. um, you know, Linda and I did this, and 
yeah, I think probably you're right. The closest thing to a declaration of love is in picking maggots out of a dog's face, which is quite <laughs> sort of weirdly romantic in a sick way, I suppose. But yeah, you know, good luck to you, mate. I mean, he does describe her as beautiful. Ah, oh, no, he does describe her as beautiful. Mm-hmm. In one of the early yeah. letters, when he talks about Harlan's assistant, assistant. or personal assistant, yeah. he, he describes her as tall and beautiful. That's about the more, more romantic thing he says about her in the entire book. Yeah. yeah. Other, other than her credit the card dog. got him out of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, before before we move into uh, the next act, we should also acknowledge I, I did enjoy, uh, because it, it it's uh, illustrated the version I have um, by Michael Foreman. Mm. And they're sketch-like uh, images, aren't they? And I think the moment where he's describing the uh, mimamic architecture you know the programmed architecture yeah so um places that are in the shape of um donuts and hot dogs that that is the real balladian moment that's like kind of fueling the landscape of uh, ballad tale of the pop yeah yeah the illustrations are wonderful and they add to the fact that this is not only a very interesting story of his experiences seeing graham his experiences with the director who we'll get to shortly but also that there are there are passages in here that are wonderful and when i was reading it they were reminding me of scenes in some david lynch films that i love for similar reasons not that they like david lynch films but they're similar in that they're it's like depictions of odd mismatched people in absurd and outlandish scenes that make me want to be there and make me want to experience it so there's a good example when he's talking about the Tropicana, the hotel, that at one point he compares to the Chelsea Hotel in New York, but he says the Chelsea Hotel is cynical and concrete and shit and people do it because it would go there because it's reputation, but the Tropicana is much more interesting. He says that um, the Tropicana has a swimming pool which could contain a corpse and a couple of dead dogs without you noticing. Punk rockers and raster men from England lie around it in battered lounge chairs, drinking beer out of cans and chortling at the fun and games of an obscure old Japanese girl band. They try to drag one another in the water while an older, mannish woman stands on the side, smiling like a tolerant madam. She's someone who failed to resemble Debbie Harry. (laughs) That's brilliant. The office of the Tropicana is covered on all available wall space with promo pictures of rock bands signed by unfamiliar names, like the Dying Cats, the Filth, the Yellow Cum Cum Band. Behind the desk, two friendly queens smile at the customers who come in to complain that their air conditioning is fucked up, or the boyfriend has locked him out of the room and is trying to kill himself in the shower. This is all taken in the staff's stride. Horribly decayed roadies in ancient leathers and dyed blonde hair, which hasn't been washed since the day before Woodstock, lie dazed in chairs, maybe awaiting the arrival of rock bands which have long since broken up or been killed in road accidents, or collapsed from overdoses. Sweetface Beverly Hills groupies giggle around the house phone, reminding some spaced and uncompre- uncomprehending Geordie that they'd met the night before at the Hollywood Palladium. It's fucking brilliant. I just love it. And there's, there's also a reference there, which I've got to say, I'd, I'd, I'd probably take slight issue with. It says, uh, where are we? It's talking about the Duke, Outwork, hamburgers. Oh yeah, big hamburgers, corned beef sandwiches, what we call salt beef in England. Right. let's have this conversation okay salt beef equals corned beef discuss Uh, i'm not not having that i'm not having that it's corned beef no i'm not convinced (laughs) and 
I, I wonder if Americans would even recognise what we understand corned beef to be. Because to me, certainly in the 70s and 80s, corned beef, I'd never even seen sliced corned beef. Corned beef was in a tin. Yes, yes. So Mocock really identifying himself as as, as a bit of the high polloi there, <laughs> comparing yes. corned beef to salt beef. I, I, wouldn't yeah. eat, I wouldn't eat corned beef as a kid unless I didn't know it was there. So my granddad would make corned beef hash and I would eat it because I didn't know really it was corned beef as a kid because he put me off corned beef because, of course, they would refer to bully beef. And he told me stories in the war of serving in North Africa and it was so hot they would open a can of corned beef and it would just pour out. Yeah. <laughs> it would just, He'd pour it out into his mess tin and break biscuits up and eat eat liquid corned beef with his spoon. And that, that put me off corned beef till I was an adult. I don't mind corned beef now. But as a kid, I would never have it. So no, I'm not having that. I'm not having that salt beef is corned beef. I'm just not no. having it. No. Yeah. But those those passages do make me want to be there. And Loz and I, over the years, I mean, we're a bit late now because I'm 51 and Loz is 52, but we discussed a joint 50th birthday present to ourselves where we'd take an extended break from work and go on a road trip through the States. And at one point, we'd actually talked about, we'll start in New York and then we'll drive down to Texas, go to Cross Plains, Texas and places like that. And that's the kind of shit I'd want to experience because prior to this, it was a scene in Wild at Heart where you're sitting under the stars drinking some obscure whiskey with that evening's companions of chance, whilst four trailers down, a load of drunk, obese people are making a porn movie. You know, and as long as Bobby Peru didn't turn up, I would more than happily have an American road trip that consisted of scenes like this. And and it really makes me want to do it. It really makes me want to one day, damn it. I don't know what Loz would yeah. think. I don't know if Loz would actually commit to that kind of holiday, but, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. It'd be amazing. Have you ever been to uh, LA? No, never been to the States. No. no. Uh, really? Oh, I mean, it, it's a fascinating place. I've been to LA a couple of times as a tourist. I've not had the vision that you've just had that mine's more like getting in the back of a van with the family yeah. uh, on a tour a greyhound tour uh while some guy convinced us that uh steve martin once lived in a house <laughs> maps to the stars he, yeah <laughs> yeah and, and he, he said that he once saw him with his shirt off and he had a tattoo of an eagle on his back I thought, that, are we talking about the right steve martin here <laughs> well speaking of tattoos Mocock get, talks about getting his tattoo, doesn't he? Go to the yes, tattoo parlour. Yes, he does. Parlor. He does. Yeah. And um, and 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 Hal and Ellison's deeply unimpressed. <laughs> the fact that him and Linda have got tattoos, and he thinks it makes them really low rent. <laughs> it's fantastic. But then, of course, we get we get the second part of the of the, the real substance of this book, don't we? Which is yeah. and interesting this is details. The best part. This the, the 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 second part is is it should be filmed. I think I, I want to yes. uh, get the film rights for this. I think it's a a fantastic story. It's brilliant. A- absolutely. So I'm I'm going to just read this a little bit. It says uh, so. He's, he's he's been waiting for his cash to come through because what we find out is that he's been told that he can claim expenses and he's going to get his advance because he needs to write the um, the spec for this screenplay for this studio who his agent has got him the gig. and But he's waiting for this money to come in. And it says, uh, by coincidence, the money started to become available at about the same time my director came back to town. I got this job through an old acquaintance who used to work with David Putnam in the early performance days. 
He'd been an executive producer on the final programme, and it wasn't his fault the film didn't turn out as well as I'd hoped. I'd always respected his judgement. Amongst film people of my acquaintance, he's one of the few I really like. A director had come to his company with an idea for a mythological-struck historical picture which he needed a writer. The producer had suggested me. The title of the movie was to be, let's say, Return to Camelot. I met the director in London. He was fresh from making a sequel to one of those juvenile space operas. The sequel had done even better business than the original, so in movie terms the director was suddenly a hot commodity. It didn't seem to occur to anyone that Rin Tin Tin could have directed the movie and it would still have broken box office records. His name had been on the credits, so therefore he was currently big news. Suddenly, he found himself able to call on higher budgets, bigger salaries, and considerably more prestige in his own circles than, say, Fellini or Truffaut. He seemed an amiable enough person, however, and what he and the producer said they wanted from me was a good, simple action-adventure story. Not too stupid, and which wouldn't take too long to make or involve too many special effects. I said I thought we could do it. We worked out a rough schedule, where we could all be at more or less the same time. The director, whom I shall call Ike Welper, asked me <laughs> how long. It's yeah. a brilliant pseudonym, that, isn't it? <laughs> asked me how long it would take me from treatment stage to first draft screenplay stage. I said that I did not intend to bullshit him. All things being equal, I could have the whole thing ready in about three weeks. A week for the treatment, and if that was approved, two weeks for the first draft screenplay. I'd worked a similar schedule on, for instance, The Land That Time Forgot. Assuming that what we're aiming for is a straightforward action plot, I said, that is what we want to do. Absolutely, said Ike. And straight away, you're like, who is this guy? Well, it's Avin Kashner, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's Avin Kashner. And I think there are points in this where the Shaggy's dog story starts to come into it a little bit. But there's enough evidence here, quite apart from what's just in those paragraphs, but also later on when it's talking about his age, his goatee beard, his gait, his mannerisms, it's Irving Kirshner. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's it's hugely entertaining, but there are some things about, because it's quite derogatory. (laughs) And we'll, (laughs) we'll get to one passage in particular, which is absolutely brilliant, where he absolutely tears him apart. But he talks about him as a guy who directed son of films and he'd basically yeah. just made his career directing sequels or further installments in existing properties. But Evan Kirshner didn't come from that background. Evan Kirshner was well respected for doing independent dramas. And I think the closest thing in evidence to a genre film was probably the eyes of Laura Mars. Mm. So there's there's some stuff in here where you start to think, is there an element of Shaggy Dog story? Is he just being deliberately obtuse whenever it comes to discussing this guy? And it does sound like a nightmare scenario, but also it's really amusing that he's got this kind of naive approach to things where it's like, yeah, I'll knock a screenplay out in three weeks, no problem. Whereas yeah. in actual fact, he finds out that the studio machine, if he was that way inclined, he could have milked this for like two years. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That that is part of the amusement, I guess, isn't it? Is opportunity to exploit the expenses. Yeah. I mean, I think it, the best he gets is a, a new typewriter and a, an extra ream of paper, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, he, he realizes whatever he asked for, he could get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there are references as well where, at one point, he says, "We didn't cook dinner at home. We went out because we could claim that." And expect, so they're just eating out all the time because if they eat out, it all gets paid for. If they eat at home, it doesn't. Sadly, 
it moves on to the next level. We get this overlap between the two parts, and Graham dies, and that's mm-hmm. where it is. It's very sad. As you, you move from this story of Murcox about this horrific situation with this director, which when you realise who he's talking about, just comes across as hugely entertaining and quite amusing, and then you get that swing to the sad death of Graham at the age of thirty-three, which he doesn't say in this book, but that's in Richard Glyn Jones's column. He says he died at 33. He says his, his intention to drink himself to death, he succeeded. It's it's quite swingy, but it goes instantly back to his problems with Ike. And Mocock observes that he dismisses him as a director that doesn't understand story or narrative. And as I said, he built a career on directing son of movies. But the most fascinating thing about that is, as we mentioned, that Irving Kirshner didn't direct those kind of movies. But after this, <laughs> the only two movies he directed were Never Say Never Again and Robocop 2. <laughs> so actually, Mocock predicts his, his subsequent career quite accurately. Yeah. And even worse, I think amongst, I mean, I say worse, it's funny, but worse for, I think, that group, that segment of Star Wars fans, there is a lot of hero worship of Irving Kirshner in Star Wars circles for being the guy who took George Lucas's property, took George Lucas's scripts and made it more character focused and came up with Empire Strikes Back, which is fairly widely considered to be hands down the best Star Wars film. I think anybody out there who worships Irving Kirshner's contribution to Star Wars mythology in terms of him being the guy who managed to channel George Lucas's creativity into creating something so weighty. Do not read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do not read page 108 <laughs> in this book because uh, Mocock disagrees uh, quite, quite uh, vociferously. Well, I, th- I think here is uh, Mocock casting self as the Englishman abroad very definitely in this situation himself as um you know again from this uh, rarefied world of Ladbroke Grove and the literary set of uh, and I suppose the uh, the genre writers of um in London and he's placed within this extremely rich rather gauche uh I suppose I suppose there's a kind of whiff of the thing of uh you know because the American is slightly less educated and well read and grounded in things. I think there's a moment, isn't there? I think you might you might be uh, getting to this where he, he's he's uh, he's seen uh, cries and whispers, and uh, he 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 thinks that that should, Bergman should be the direction in yeah. which uh, Moorcock should uh, direct his attention, yeah. um, away from all this uh, genre stuff and uh, what he was exploring about the authenticity of uh, Arthur and the Arthur story. Let, let's tap into Bergman. That's yeah. that, that's the direction we should go. Yeah, um, <laughs> it should be Bergman by way of Kurosawa. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. uh, He says, um, My boss thinks not in terms of narrative rules, but only in terms of other movies he's seen. I've come across many bad writers who display the same characteristics. Few of them, however, and the kind of money this man makes. Once again, my naive puritanical soul is deeply shocked 
I used to think that the complicated business of making a film was what went wrong with so many of them, particularly in recent years. Somehow people lost their grip on the movie, I thought, and so it shifted direction, contradicted itself in narrative terms and failed to maintain dynamic, thus making a true resolution impossible. I'm rapidly beginning to realise that movies are not spoiled during their making. They don't grow banal because of outside forces, or interfering producers, recalcitrant technicians or bad actors. They are actually designed badly from the outset. They are banal from the very earliest stages of their existence. Whole teams of pre-production people get together to ensure the banality of the final print. My boss has the imagination of a tub of coleslaw. He has the creative <laughs> gift of a cockroach. He has the emotional urge of a nine-year-old schoolboy. And he has the power to summon up millions upon millions of dollars to command the destinies of hundreds of human beings, to employ the creative gifts of hundreds more and debase them. At present, he's only debasing mine. If this project goes anywhere, and I'm hoping now it won't, you'll be able to debase the talents of all kinds of technicians, of actors, of skilled specialists. There's no longer any doubt in my mind that this man is a monster. What is still more alarming is only one of many similar monsters. For every Ford, Hitchcock or Hawks, there are 50 of these others, and the people with the money and the power to hire them seem completely unable to distinguish between them. The money I'm receiving, upon which my fate more or less hangs, is a tiny fraction of their daily expenditure. It scarcely counts at all. It's written off against taxes. I'm even less important in this whole dreadful enterprise than I originally guessed. That, of course, could be another reason I'm going crazy. A novelist <laughs> is used to having both control over and responsibility for the work produced. A screenwriter in the main has neither. It's a hard lesson to learn. I'm not sure in the end I want to learn it. Oh, harsh. But yes. one of my favourite paragraphs in the entire book occurs during this letter when he says, these days I'm ready for a drink, but my boss doesn't drink. He's come somewhat late to the notion of health. We have some milk. I pray that some of the uppers I took just after breakfast will last me through another day of this. <laughs> oh, amazing. We've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. Good God. Yeah. But, but again, Andy, just think of who the audience for this is. So it's appearing in Ambit magazine yeah. uh, of struggling uh, poets, uh, jazz musicians, uh, artists, and um, they would, this is like, this is orthodoxy. This is the Hollywood um, machine, the industry. And, uh, you know, the, the, the creatives there, as he says, can summon millions of dollars and uh that's the that's the injustice of it mm. that they have the imagination and capabilities of a tub of coleslaw um it's and brilliant. yet they <laughs> yeah it's they such a brilliant paragraph <laughs> yeah such a wonderful paragraph it's fantastic and I, I think you know it's still entirely possible that a lot of this is heavily embellished and a bit shaggy dog perhaps hence the pseudonym and of course there is another pseudonym yeah. at the end which we'll which i think we'll get to but yeah, yeah, he's 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 basically talking about his screenwriting nightmare, but he's preaching to probably a group of people who feel justified and and validated yeah. by his by his uh, his outrage. But it is it is an entertaining read. But of course, I think we've skipped over um, the end of Graham Hall, and we haven't yet raised a perno to oh. Graham Hall now. Did you manage to source some pernas? I, 
I I didn't source any perno. I I apologize. Mm. I was going to get a miniature because I couldn't commit to a full bottle. Yeah. Because I haven't drunk that since the eighties and the uh, wow. Markham incident. Yeah. Um, well, you could tell me about the Markham incident because <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the East Yorkshire buses incident, <laughs> which also involves perno. So you go first. Let's. It's confession. T- it's perno confession time. Yeah. Well. I mean, me, me and Blythe uh, went on a holiday uh, to Morecambe and we had to um, gather whatever um, drinks we could. And um, Perno was the only thing that we were able to rescue from the uh, back of the cupboard um, when we were six. Oh, and I don't think um, uh, a drop has touched my lips since that fateful apocalyptic night. Mm. Yeah. Similar experience, but in my case, um, I'm 16, 17. There's a nightclub in Hull called Spiders, which was, is a famous nightclub to anybody who was of that age, who was around in those days, or I was at university in Hull in those days. Spiders was um, an alternative nightclub that was only open on Fridays and Saturdays. Funnily enough, all of their booze was p- provided by Sam Smith's. They were licensed by Sam Smith's. So all of the spirits were Samuel Smith spirits, and you know that all the Sam Smith spirits that you get on the optics of the back are like strange knockoff spirits. And they did a line in cocktails that we all used to hammer when we were 16, 17. And there were things like Pink Pugsley's, which was strawberry milk and brandy, and probably Galliano. They seemed to put Galliano in everything. And there was um, a brown bomber, which was chocolate milk and brandy, and probably Galliano. But then there was a line of other cocktails which were generally cider blackcurrant and perno and other things so there was the tarantula which i think was cider and a perno and black half a cider with perno and black in it but the 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 pinnacle of these was in a pint glass and it was a pangalactic gargle blaster <laughs> and it was perno galliano brandy a couple of other things until you got halfway up a pint pot then topped up with cider and blackcurrant and I had a night in there, and I don't know how many pangalactic gargle blasters I had, but at three o'clock that morning, I was heaving perno and black and pangalactic gargle blaster, and everything just turned to pe- taste of perno. The puke tasted of perno. It was yeah. absolutely, absolutely horrific. It was horrific. Um, it, 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 it's very distinctive on its way out. Oh, compared, uh, well, it tastes the same in. going out as it does going <laughs> yeah. in. Yeah, just yeah. a little bit more acidic. And, and the next day, I went on a trip. I was doing A-level English, and there was a trip to Manchester to see a series of short Shakespeare plays run by a small theatre company where they were doing, like, whole Shakespeare plays in 20 minutes with a cast of four or whatever it was. And I got picked up by the bus, and it was back in the day you got these bus companies, these coach companies, where it was just a, a small yard down a residential street, and they had three old coaches. And it wasn't like a big bus company or anything like that. The coaches were all old and rackety. And I got on the bus. I managed to get up and get up, go catch the coach on the Saturday morning to go to Manchester. And all the way to Manchester, all I could smell was perno and black and puke. And I just thought, I just thought it was me. And I had this beautiful Gabardine Mac that my granddad Pops had given me from the 1950s. It was an absolutely glorious grey Gabardine Mac with a shimmering purple it was purple in certain angles in the light and green in others like silk liner it was an absolutely beautiful mac and when we got there i stood up and i realized that i'd sat in someone else's perno and black puke 
and it was all down the back of my Mac. So what are the chances? What are the fucking chances that you could spend all night drinking Pernod-based cocktails, throw it all up, and the next day get on a coach and sit in someone else's cold Pernod and black puke? You just... It's a fucking one in a million chance, but it was absolutely horrendous. So the next day I had to to get off at the university, go into the bathrooms where this play was being held, go to the bathrooms and clean someone else's perno and black puke off my beautiful gabardine mac, and I've never drunk perno since. The the multiverse will do these things to you. Yeah. When when we were in the uh, caravan and we had to be rescued by um, Blythe's then-girlfriend, no wife, and um, she came in the caravan and helped us uh, wash it because like a week's worth of washing up but it's still there we made a pan of scouse and uh, it was like drying on, on there and uh, at one point she said can you smell perno and that was from like three days earlier <laughs> yeah it's, it has a habit of sticking around doesn't it yeah yeah so i, I actually did think about gunner morrison's and getting a bottle of Perno. And when I went and got my old peculiar earlier on, I did I did have a furtive glance at the spirits shelf to see if they had Perno and they didn't have Perno. Oh. So the closest thing I've got on my shelves to anything vaguely Perno-ish, which I'm going to have a slug of now to Graham Hall, to drink to Graham Hall, is um, some Polish absinthe. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so... Now, this could get interesting as we head to Berkeley. Yeah, Absinthian yeah. Deluxe. It's a... Uh, Hold, hold that, hold that up again, Andy. I'm going to take a screenshot of that uh, for prosperity, in I case. Mean, there we go. Let's get it focused. The, there we go. Yeah, and it's a, <laughs> uh, it's a nasty fifty-five percent, which um, actually is quite mild for absinthe. I've got another one on the shelf downstairs that's sixty-six, um, but most people make a terrible mistake with absinthe and think you're supposed to just do it as shots, which just rips no. your throat line out. Yeah. Um, so I've got some nice chilled water that I'm going to loose yeah. it with. And, uh, of course, you won't be able to have this in Hollywood because I think uh, absinthe's banned, isn't it, in America? It? it was for a long time. Absinthe was illegal in a lot of countries, which I think, uh, this might be an apocryphal story, but I think that's why things like perno and pastis and some of these other things actually came about because they basically took perno, made it a more mm. sensible strength, sorry, took absinthe, reduced the strength of it and took the wormwood out and what you basically mm. had was a syrupy absinthe, uh, sorry, a syrupy um, aniseed-based liqueur. But there we go. Got my loose absinthe. So I'll tip that. There we go. Uh, yeah, quite pleasant. It's a great hole. Mm. So we do shortly get one of my favourite anecdotes in the book, which is he's chatting. He goes to his agent's party. His agent invites him to a party at his place in Beverly Hills and is chatting to John Vernon, Canadian actor, most famous, arguably, for being the dean in National Lampoon's Animal House and Dirty Harry's boss. (laughs) (laughs) Harry Callahan's boss in the first two or three Dirty Harry films. A wonderful image that makes me deeply envious of the whole scenario, but it only gets better because Christopher Lee turns up. Oh, this is a great... This is, this is worth prices, price of admission alone. This. It's wonderful. <laughs> and and this is why this entire – you could turn this book – This I would welcome this book as a film as much as I'd welcome any Mocock thing as, as yes. a film. It would be brilliant. And it says, according to my agent, who, like most, is given to hyperbole, Lee is my greatest fan and has come specially to meet me. Lee knows Vernon. 
Vernon asks him about the latest cricket scores, and Lee reports what he knows. As Vernon goes off to get another drink, Lee confides to me humorously that he's never been interested in cricket in his life before. Since coming to Hollywood, however, he's found that everyone asks him about the cricket, so he's made it his business to know at least a little bit about it. He's a huge man, very amiable and pleasant in his manner. I'm not used to being overshadowed, so feel a trifle awkward as I stare up at him. I feel I'm being rude as I realised I've been looking at his teeth without realising why. <laughs> I learn later that Linda has been doing the same. You expect something a bit less ordinary after all those Dracula pictures. I actually prefer Lee in what you might call his dialogue roles. He was a great hero, for instance, in The Devil Rides Out. He tells me how much he's enjoyed my Elric fantasies and wonders if there's going to be a film soon. I'm a bit too old for Elric now, but I'd love to play Ariok. I feel very flattered and tell him so. He invites Linda and me to visit him at his home in Los Angeles. He also tells me the secret of surviving in Hollywood is to remember at all times that you're British. Don't ever drop your standards, he warns. That's just fucking wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. And Mocock name-checks all sorts of famous people, but that's the one time where he writes like a fanboy. And yes. it, it feels really genuine and brilliant. It's uh, it's fantastic. And I, I would absolutely love to see that in some kind of biopic, Mocock biopic. It would be brilliant. Not that we'll ever get one, but, you know, you can, you can dream, can't you? You can dream. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we should say that this uh, book appeared in 1986 Mm. and um, it it previously appeared in Ambit, but I've got this. I don't know if you've got this, uh, Andy. This is um, The Secret Life of Savoy Books, Savoy Dreams. No, I haven't. This is an anthology that was put together Again, last time we spoke, we talked about some of the difficulties that Savoy had mm. because of the legal challenge of uh, Mengen yeah. Hecker, and this yeah. was a bit of a fundraiser. And it includes um, excerpts from letters from Hollywood before they're uh, collected in the book. Ah. Yeah, and that anecdote is the same, but it appears slightly different in here. So it becomes a little bit more embellished in. Oh. the anthology that we're reading today right um yeah so i mean i don't think there's any value in going through it but just some of the words in it, they, it it's kind of um foregrounded a bit differently right. and it, all it concentrates on is the fact that uh christopher lee wants to play ariok in yeah. his version uh, but yeah it's kind of as you said this this um Letters from Hollywood is a bit more of a shaggy dog version because yeah. you know the, the lines are laid out there to tell this story. Yeah, um, so I, th- I think that's quite interesting comparing the two. You know what? It wouldn't be a Mocock text if it hadn't been revised exactly at least once, exactly. would it? You know, exactly. They all get revised. Sadly, there's a bit of whiplash after this because you get this wonderful, heartfelt moment, this Christopher Lee moment, and and who doesn't love a good Christopher Lee moment? You know, the guy was a fucking legend but there's some slightly less savory content follows and Mm, um so he and linda moved to a predominantly black and latino neighborhood where he comments that they're made to feel very welcome but then he's he's musing on the blacks and the chicanos and there's an anecdote on page 4143 that gave me absolute whiplash i'm not going to read it 
because it's pretty unpleasant, but they visit a dog breed, a friend of theirs, who tells them her children are handing out clan leaflets, and she regales them with clan jokes told to her by those same children. And it's mm. um, it's pretty unsavoury. And funnily enough, I think Mocock knows what he's doing where he puts that in at this point, because it marks a distinct change in the feel of L.A. that mm. you get from Mocock's letters after this point. Once he's free of Ike, he and Linda have a, seem to have a more jaded sense of the city and its environs past this point. And it's almost like that's a punctuation mark at some yes. point. And yes. he has his interactions with his new agent because he's completed the script now, he's submitted it, he's got the second half of his payment, he doesn't have to deal with Ike in inverted commas anymore. And this blank check deal with a script he develops belongs to, you get this sense that it belongs to like the tail end of a golden age of Hollywood. And the times are a changing, and he, ref- he refers to Reagan's America starting to kick in, and his his agent is a lot less um, effusive. He likes his new agent because he thinks he's more honest. But this idea that there will be this endless gravy train for him to just write a screenplay that never really comes to fruition has gone away, and that's when we get this couple of letters that outline the trip upstate to escape Venice, and we get this travelogue. And the rather amusing stuff where the travel up to San Francisco and it, it does get a little bit by Decker here again with um, yes. some of the traveling. I, th- I think the uh, final act after the great anecdotes and stories um, that are regaled in this uh, middle section, it becomes a bit more pedestrian, doesn't it? The um, fi- it does. final act. But it, it's interesting that you point out that that, point is a, a a point of departure because i've also noted and um, that that actual incident at the dog, dog breeders is a, a moment where the to- there is a tonal shift and all that optimism all that kind of sense of america being some uh you know the, the new play everything's new with its kind of mock gothic bit and then this is this is the grim reality of it mm. and uh, what struck me as well is that on page 143 um the illustration where you get the back of somebody's head and yes jesus saves you uh on there and it, it seems to be uh that is the moment where the the book uh, turns mm. its back a little bit on america Mm. and uh, starts, as you say, a feeling of we've got to get out of here. Uh, from, from the idea at the beginning where this is a place where I want to spend the rest of my days, it, there is a bit more of a, a cynicism that yeah. creeps in from this point. Yeah. The funny thing is about this passage where he explains, and it's only one short paragraph where he quotes two jokes that she tells them that are deeply disgusting and racist. I can't remember the exact expression he uses. She tells us with a mixture of relish and horror that her kids are handing out clan leaflets at school. Along with a lot of the content of those couple of pages, the the discussion with the agent, the references to the change in America after Reagan's been elected, it does mark uh, a a tonal shift Mm. in in their attitude to LA and... It does. It, fortunately, it does become amusing again because the, the travelogue, whilst it is probably, I wouldn't describe it as dry, because the way he writes it and his interest and passion for some of the places that they go, and his descriptions of the people and the 
even just simple things like the architecture is all really absorbing and interesting. But it's only really when we get to San Francisco where he starts to opine or editorialize <laughs> on the nature of San Francisco that it actually becomes truly entertaining again. Yeah, so I think when he's when he's traveling when he's traveling through the Big Sur, it's um I suppose it it reminded me of like some of those uh, moments in uh, Elric or some of those travelogue moments where yeah. they're just passing through minor encounters yeah. <laughs> to till you get to the uh, to the to the more significant. So you get yeah. to Nadsakor or something like that. Yeah. Where it's uh, a bit more interesting. His description of San Francisco is amusing though. He's uh, he says I get the impression sometimes that San Francisco is a city consisting entirely of anal retentives. <laughs> it's here you expect to find societies for the preservation of defunct societies. It's the recycling capital of the world, a museum of toys too valuable, too precious, too cultural to let the children play with it. It hangs on to bits of old, tarred rope, to broken shovels, to rusting trolley rails. Whatever can be sprayed with preservative resin is thoroughly sprayed. What can be trapped in glass is trapped. It seems half San Francisco is already filed, shelved, catalogued, microfiched. Yet tomorrow the next monster quake could rob these prim misers of the lot. You can't really blame the city for this aspect of its personality, but you can get righteously sick and tired of its inhabitants telling you what a virtuous place San Francisco is. All that serves San Francisco for me is the tenderloin. Today, even that district of thieves and whores begins to look more and more like the upmarket bits of Soho, in danger of becoming as miserable a shadow of its old self as parts of New Orleans now are. It's slowly being sanitised, encroached upon by middle-class improvement and big business. What was once a whorehouse is today a Wendy's hamburger concession, and cheap wine is no longer sold from the shop, now offering imported wooden toys and video games for the kids. Like so many cities until recently associated with vice and violence, Marseille and Brighton spring to mind, San Francisco seems anxious to show how respectable she has become nowadays. She doesn't appear to realise while this might attract the Rotarian Convention once a year, it's as likely to drive the paying tourists away as attract them, since they're removing all the romance. But I could be underestimating the tourists' tastes. Probably it's exactly what they want. What better place can they visit after Yosemite National Park? It's a city, but it's not as horrible as other cities. New York is a cesspit, and Los Angeles is a smog-bound citadel of mindless materialism, full of weirdos and drug addicts. San Francisco is a haven of sanity and art. No Dark Age monastery clinging to its scraps of inaccurate history in misspelled, boldly illuminated Latin could believe itself saintlier. In the street Hammett once walked in pursuit of defaulting debtors and runaway wives are no longer threatening. If the hooker's ball has become one of the most fashionable events of the season, and if you have to wear a jacket and tie to get into a gay bar, maybe it's so that Chinese labourers aren't beaten to death in broad daylight and their murderers let go with a caution for disturbing the peace, or simply so two women can walk together in a park without being jeered at by everything except the daisies and the pigeons. I can go to most bars and order a drink without much fear these days of someone in a corner taking mysterious offence, so maybe I shouldn't complain. One can benefit from the middle-class conspiracy, that unspoken truth some of us mistake, for good manners. So he's, he, he even goes through an arc in the space of those few paragraphs. It's like San Francisco is boring and it's lame and it's full of middle-class wankers who want to sell you wooden toys, but actually it's safe 
and it's not the shithole that New York and Los Angeles are. So he's, he's kind of going through a cycle by the end of this, and you really get the sense that even though they decide that they want to go back to Venice and they get fed up of it all, there's a certain duality moving into his opinion of everything about these places. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's so, but I find that the puzzle of gentrification, isn't it? Because mm. so you hear this phrase, gentrification, where everything becomes homogenised and working-class neighbourhoods are transformed for the spectacle and uh, the consumption of tourists. But there is something about that that is simultaneously inauthentic, but it's also a good thing, isn't it? Uh, it's like yeah. an urban renewal, an urban... And I, 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 I felt that bit was uh, articulating something that we're doing now, aren't we, is um, increasingly... You know, uh, city centres are transformed and, um, you know, the high street is changing around us. Mm. And it be, the, uh, uh, San Francisco is uh, an example of a, a city that's domesticated as well as being somewhere that's visited. Um, and so mm. I, I, I do think that he is articulating there something that I, I mull over a lot about um, the places that um, I visit. I've been to the, the Tenderloin, actually, a, a few years ago, and it, it's still quite terrifying as a mm. tourist because, um, you know, it, it is off the beaten track in terms of um, uh, uh, tourism. But clearly it has the, its authenticity for him is in the fact that it was good old-fashioned authentic crime and, you know, that's where it's heritage belongs in the fact that you know um people were good honest criminals um uh, surviving day to day um and now it's just you know gentrified to the point that um, the middle classes have taken over and uh, mm. consum consumerism's creeping in it is a bit of a, an ambiguity of um, modern consumerism i guess yeah i think the ambiguity is understandable though because what we've got here is mocock probably turning into his 40s and i think there's a tension between his love of urban decay and the glory of the old frayed edges of what was and what he really adored and found romantic in because you know he loves the urban decay of london for example he loves so mm. he loves all that stuff but i think there is a tension as we get older between loving all that stuff and actually wanting to be comfortable and safe yes and yeah. and that's what's coming through for here for me in this he's had this remarkable experience in los angeles you even get the duality in the passages where he talks about him and Linda living amongst predominantly ethnic minorities, but actually consistently judging them for playing the wrong music too loud. Yes. <laughs> and he sounds he sounds like a grumbly old man. Oh yeah, the fucking hate Mexican music, you know. And at one point he says that there's like a I can't remember how he phrases it, but it's it's like there's a delusion amongst the in inverted commas chicanos that they're good at music and food just like there's a delusion amongst inverted commas the blacks that they have rhythm <laughs> and, that, and that occurs in one sentence in in one of those chapters yeah only yeah. a couple of paragraphs after he's said 
how welcomed they are by you know this this community that they've moved into where they're shocked if they see another white face it's definitely he's not only writing this for an audience he's writing this at a very specific stage in his life where his priorities are just very subtly shifting from that love of the rough edges of society to the need to feel safe I guess yeah. we all go through that. You know, I'm talking earlier on about how I want to go and get drunk in Big Tuna, Texas, but I don't want to live there. <laughs> yeah. I think I think he's probably catching on to something as well that was emerging in the 80s in terms of um, the heritage industry mm. and the fact that, I mean, at some point he talks about San Francisco being in love with itself and mm. it's... Uh, past in terms of hippie culture and uh, self-replicating that for the benefit of uh, tourists and uh, making sure that its identity was uh, maintained uh, in this past um, in you know, in the same way that I think he, he, he does the equivalent of um, visitors who come to uh, England and see ye oldie pubs, yeah, country pubs with yeah. Elvis playing. They get irritated when Elvis plays because it spoils their theme park view. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and that's very much um that was very much emerging in the mid eighties, wasn't it? That mm. idea of um the consumerization of um the past and places replicating the past for the benefit of um tourist consumption. Mm. And yeah, I think I, I think uh, I think he's quite. He makes uh, that observation. There's quite a few observations like that. I think peppered throughout the book where they're very pertinent to now. Mm. Um, he, I, th- I think at one point he observes that you know that the self reliance, the reduction in the value of uh, people's work and people's contribution and the. Um, identity as work beings and mm. um, they're all beholden to the till or whatever's telling giving them the information if that breaks down they have nothing else to rely on so the whole machinery has turned the world into a a, a self-replicating a computer mm. that um no longer uh, human beings have any um sway over or uh, able to intervene to make it work mm. and um you think that's quite prescient as well i think that kind of describes some of the discussions that we have today mm. yeah yeah so that's the second piece of prescience predicting having cash would direct robocop to and everything <laughs> you just said <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, th- there's also there's there's not a lot left of the book really but there's there's a couple of things which i think bear a mention and one is the second best anecdote after the Christopher Lee anecdote, and this is about interactions with his fans. Oh, this is time, great. Which this is, is great. fantastic. It says, yeah. uh, I'm pretty cheerful because earlier we were given some very good cocaine by an acquaintance who believes I am the world's number one coke addict. People read my books and think I'm just like my characters. I'm too old for it these days anyway. This confusion between me and my stories sometimes depresses me. Sometimes, too, it frightens me. I think that they might be right. On my birthday in LA, I get Coke spoons, <laughs> another paraphernalia, <laughs> tabs of acid, lines of smack in notes signed Peace and Keep on Trucking. 
Messages from an earlier, more innocent world. Messages indeed from that world's victims. It used to be mainly speed freaks who read me, I was told. I think this was probably true because until recently in several pubs around Notting Hill Gate, I used to be offered bombers or sulphate before I could reach the bar and order a pint. Some years ago, the owner of a shop in London asked me seriously, what are you doing to your fans? They come shambling in here, wearing filthy jeans and studded jackets, knock down a rack of books, retch over the magazines and open their filthy palms with 50 pence pieces in them. The red eyes roll up in their sockets. You know what they want, but you wait for them to mumble the words anyway. New Moorcock, man. <laughs> we give them your latest paperbacks and away they go again. The thing is, they never buy any books by other authors. I felt vaguely flattered. When these fans recognise me in the street, they rarely buttonhole me. They're usually sweet-natured, well-mannered, even shy. I'm glad they like my stuff. The only problem is, it's almost impossible to stop them giving me drugs. <laughs> <laughs> when I used to smoke a pipe, I had to learn to cover it, or I'd find it half full of hash before I knew it. They offer quick, apologetic, secretive smiles and press something into your hand or flip it into your pocket. Then when you look, you've got a tiny one-hit tinfoil twist of sulphate or a joint. Once, in New York, I had to flush about 12 different angel-dusted joints down the toilet for fear of offending their brain-damaged donors. How was it, man? Some of them asked with pleased, expectant grins next day. Great, I said. Oh, it was great. Best I've ever had. But I'm determinedly upwardly mobile these days. What else can you be living in a concrete and timber garage? And I mix with a rich type of lordy. Wealthier fans now insist on my trying this great Colombian 90% pure or their Peruvian silver. <laughs> fucking brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, what a thing to moan about. <laughs> Wonderful. What a life is that. Yeah, and 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 the thing thing is, Andy, really, this is all we've got, isn't it, in yeah. terms of memoir? Because yeah. I've been I've been reading uh, the Whispering Swarm and um, the Sanctuary novels, um, mm. the uh, second ones recently being uh, released, and you can see uh, snippets of autobiography within there. Yeah, um, but he conceals it within this fantasy. Um, that he's created around um, his character. So similar to uh, Jerry Cornelius, uh, Michael Moorcock is a fictional character within his own memoir. Mm. So the, the bits that are tantalising in uh, The Whispering Swarm are the bits that tell you what actually happened in mm. Labrook Grove and during that period. But very quickly they, they go into fantasy mm. and... What I want, I suppose, as a fan and I suppose of a lover of a memoir is a, a, just a real one, just a real yeah. story of what a fantastic life in art, in music, in, in literature, in publishing, in comics, and all this contribution that a, a single person has made in such a prolific manner. Mm. I want to find out more about it and... Uh, but a great life, but you know, all we have really is letters from Hollywood, and that's why I suggested it uh, for a Breakfast in the Ruins. Yeah, it's surprising, isn't it? Really, when you think about it, that there isn't a Mocock biography, um, yeah, like approved or otherwise. Because you're right, we've got this, we've got snippets of things that is written that end up in things like Death is No Obstacle or or any of the other collections or Murdom Times. 
but yeah, they're Casablanca, Casablanca, I think, has got a bit of yeah. travelogue in it as well. But they're all written very much to be, I don't know if literary is the right expression, they're not written as raw biography. They're always written with uh, an agenda or a narrative purpose. And you're right, this is the closest we've got to a raw description. For example, there, a raw description of him fanboying out to Christopher Lee or a raw description of his feelings around his fans sticking hash in his pipe or any of these things. And it, it's the most genuine feeling stuff I've ever read mm-hmm. by Mocock. And it's the most truthful stuff I've ever read by Mocock, notwithstanding the fact that there was, we, we do think there probably is a little bit of, well, we know there's a bit of embellishment because he said it in the introduction. Yes. You know, he yeah. says he's embellished parts of this for, for a narrative effect. Um, but yeah, it is a shame because I I could write I could sorry I could read several volumes of this quite mm. happily, and you're right about it being an easy read. This is, you could read this in one visit to the throne. This is a one shit book. Yes, definitely, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame, and as wonderful as that anecdote is, it's it's followed by another and again something that underlines the melancholic nature of all this is the anecdote about Jenny, mm. an old girlfriend of his who and. It, who, who died young and he comments on how many of his friends and acquaintances did die very young due to drug habits of which Graham Hall is just the latest in this case. And, and it does reinforce that sad self-reflective undertone to all of it and to his, and to his demeanor in general, I think. And again, it's even capped off in one of the last letters in the book when he talks about the soured relationship with somebody who he gives the pseudonym Mo. Um, a, a fellow writer of his who he and Linda managed to get on a, a sci-fi convention circuit and get them out there. And for whatever reason, the fallout and Mocock doesn't realise why he's fallen out with this person. And it it leaves a really sad, sour note to it all, which is really unfortunate. And of course, he gives him the demeanour Mo and he says, I'll call him Mo because that's who I called the character in the Cornelius novels who was based on him. So we have to assume he's talking about Shaky Mo Collier, who... I thought was actually uh, either way you look at it, it's probably talking about M. John Harrison again, mm. um, because I think M. John Harrison was actually the creator of the Shaky Mo character in a, a Jerry Cornelius short story that he wrote. But in Mocox, in Mocox head, it's his pseudonym, you know, for uh, for this guy, and he falls out with M. John Harrison for reasons that are difficult to define, and it's it's really sad and really and really sour. And and it's it's a shame, and it makes me it makes me want the next chapter, you know, where we yes. find out actually that, you know, they have a rapprochement or something. You know, it's um, it leaves it on quite yeah. a sour note, which is a shame. But yeah, yeah. it's notwithstanding all of the caveats that we've mentioned, it is uh, a fucking great read. It's a really yes. good read, indeed. Mm. And 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 just on that, um, Mike Harrison. Um, no, he too, he's, he's recently uh, published his, his memoir, but it's yeah. like an anti-memoir. He yeah. describes it as, and that's on my shelf at the moment. I'm not I've not read it. I don't know if you've managed to dip into yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I pre-ordered it and it came and it went on a pile and it's just gathering dust in a pile with a, a million other things because I still want to read um, the Pastel City and cover it on this podcast because I still right. I, I want to cover some Mike Harrison on the podcast. But again, I've got the Pastel City just sitting in a pile on the to-do list. It's not enough fucking hours in the day, man, is there? Not enough no, hours no. in the day. I, I understand from some of the reviews that there are oblique references to uh, both Ballard and uh, Moorcock in mm. his uh, 
anti-memoir, as he yeah. describes it. So I'll be interested to see how that compares. Mm. I think after reading this, I'm more inclined to probably accelerate it up the list. But Yes. But yeah. we'll see. We'll see. But that was Letters from Hollywood. So thanks for suggesting it. We got round to it eventually, thanks to you. So cheers. Cheers. Thanks, Andy. And mm. thanks for your little annotations that you've done through it because uh, it's really helped me to understand the depth of it as well. So thank you for that. Um, that sounded like a really melancholic note to go out on as well. What I will do is I shall crack another bottle of El Peculiar because I, whilst I enjoyed that absinthe, I'm not sure I could really cope with another one because we've got a lot to do tomorrow. So I don't want to wake up with an absinthe head. So I'm going to crack another El Peculiar and I'm going to say cheers and happy Friday and uh, let's uh, hook up again at some point in the future and do something else. I've really enjoyed doing Wizardry and Wild Romance and Letters from Hollywood. But I don't know. Maybe maybe we should set a target date to read the M. John Harrison anti-memoir and talk about that. But I'm sure we'll yeah, think of definitely. something. Yeah, definitely. And I would I would love to explore some of those new worlds with you. Um, mm. Because, as you know, I've got a bit of a fascination about small magazines and, yeah. and I would love to look at some of them with you. Okay. What I'll do is I'll come up with a list of which ones I've got and we'll compare notes and see what we've got. Massive thanks once again to Chris for joining me in Darien Toms. You can find the Grognard files on all podcatchers. Derek and Blythe have covered Mococ RPGs a number of times, including deep dives into the Stormbringer and Hawkmoon games published by Chaosium, and interviews with authors Kenson Andre and Kiri Campbell-Robson, essential listening for gamers and non-gamers alike. And watch out for their next episode in particular, for which he has a very, very special guest. As mentioned in our yakking, the Richard Glyn Jones blog is at rglynjones.com and the post I quoted is titled New Worlds and dates to the 26th of June 2021. I will post a link in the show notes. But for now, it just suffices to say thanks, as always, to our patrons for keeping this show on the road. First, those without tear. Anthony Picconti, Tim Cardos, Dave Dempster and Sebastian Weetabix. And our chaos engineers, Andrew Cicluna, Andrew Van Ness, Anthony Porter, Benjamin Fletcher, Brandon Mays, Craig Ledley, Dave Griffiths, Dave Voxman, Gabriel Laycock, Harvey Faulkner Aston, Jim Kirkland, Jim Knight, John W. Lays, Jules Lawrence, Mal Pertwee, Mary Catherine, Matt Saltz, Nelbert, Paul McRandall, PJ Cooper, Scott Butler, and Simon Perrins. And to our crafty juggaderos, Alexander Harris, Laws, Taylor, Matthew Broom, Graham Holden, and Toby White. And finally, eternal thanks, of course, to our patron demons Ton Milazzo, Alistair Davison, Andy Clark. Andy Darby, David Lee, Fred Keish, Gareth Wilson, Greg Faulkner, Gwen Barlow, Ian Stead, Imria, Jenny Stim, Jason Vogel, Jay Risa, Joe Monty, Lee Gary, Mark Hebden, Miles Riedelbato, Neil Burton, Paul Hillary, Randall Gatlin, Steve Round, Tom Murphy, the OG patron Norman Beresford, and last, but never least, 
Robert McMillan. Right, enough blather. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at Breakfast Ruins. You can email us at breakfastruins at outlook.com. The webpage is breakfastintheruins.com. We have our Patreon page too, and there are a few extra odds and sods on there. But for now, take care, stay safe, and we will meet again soon on the Moonbeam Roads.